0: Hi, I'm Stephanie Everett, and I'm Kelly Street, and this is episode 338 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Stephanie talked with Labster Spencer Keys about approaching his firm
1: as a client-centered service. Today's podcast is brought to you by DK Global, Post PostDolly, and Rankings.io. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them later on.
0: So when I hear client-centered service or client-centered services, I'm curious, how do you define that, Stephanie? What does that mean
1: to you to have a client-centered law firm? To me, it's just about thinking about the client first, not necessarily what I want as a business owner, but really putting myself in their shoes and what can I do to make their experience better, happy? I mean, whatever it is I want them to feel. Do I want them to feel comforted? Or am I doing tech startups? And for a tech startup, if they were my client, I wouldn't necessarily want them to feel comforted. Yeah. <laughs> am I might design the experience differently based on who my client is and what they're coming to me for and how I can think about delivering something that's amazing and awesome and authentic.
0: I've talked with a few firms lately and I've asked them, who do you want to work with? And I'll hear businesses and I always push to go further and dig deeper because there are so many kinds of businesses and there are going to be ones that you as a business law firm, as in any kind of law firm, they're going to be clients that you don't like working with and those that you do. If you are not as drawn to working with a particular type of business company, you're probably not going to feel drawn to build services that would cater to them either. How do we do that at Lawyerist? How do we try to have a client-centered company? Great question.
1: (laughs) I'd like to think we do it in lots of ways. One thing that we're doing that we are excited to start talking about is a lot of people know we have our in-person conference, LabCon, and it's actually going to be back in person in November. So we've had to go... I know. I'm so excited. We've had to do it virtual for the past three times, and we finally feel like, you know, we can welcome people and put on an event that feels safe and comfortable for both the people coming and for our team. We're being really thoughtful and intentional about that. But at the same time, we do a lot when we think about that experience, because that is the one time we get to interact with people in person. I can tell you that our team is really thinking about what we want that experience experience to be from the moment someone comes and starts connecting with us. I mean, we're so intentional about it. I'll give one quick example and then I want to tell you the other big thing we're doing. Um, it can be very intimidating to walk into a room for the first time. We've all had to walk into the reception that's started or is starting not know anyone and be like, great, now I got to go meet someone. Introvert's worst nightmare. (laughs) Exactly. So obviously the conference starts and we get to know each other. How can we do that differently? One of the things we started doing is, and again, this is going to sound maybe so simplistic when I say it, but we have people come to the registration desk and they have to officially register. And then they're kind of asked to just hang out there for a second. And then I come up And usually I know everybody because I've been working with them, but maybe I've never met them in person. So that's a fun moment. And then I'm come on back. Let me take you into where we are and introduce you. I just don't push them into a room. I actually walk them into the room and help them start a conversation. So I would go up and be like, Hey, this is Kelly. You'll, you've met her or you remember her or whatever. And I make sure that they have a connection and that they're good. And then I politely excuse myself to go back and get the next person. I'm hand walking people in. And again, it sounds so simple, but I want to put myself in our client's shoes of how would they feel and how can we make sure that they don't have that anxiety driven moment where they're, oh God, now I got to go find someone to talk to.
0: Yes. Yep. Makes the connection right away. You don't have that awkward. What do I have in common with this person? Other than that, we're both in lab. Hi. And obviously some of our labsters are just beyond excited to see one another. But for those who aren't, we're thinking about the event from the perspective of someone who maybe isn't an extrovert, isn't coming in already seeking out someone that they know.
1: And then this year we have an extra challenge because it is the pandemic and And it is harder for some people to travel. Maybe they don't feel comfortable yet. There's all kinds of reasons. It doesn't really matter what their reasons are, that they're just not ready to come to an in-person event. And we had to really think intentionally about how can we include them in the experience so that we have an inclusive environment. And quite frankly, I could see a version of this continuing into the future because even in non-pandemic times, there are people who, for many reasons, can't travel. So drum roll please no we're super excited because at this upcoming event that we're going to do we have the option for some robot appearances I mean it sounds silly to well, say I, know. I mean this is so lawyerist
0: we're talking about living our values and being client-centered you can attend if you're a labster attend LabCon via
1: robot I know I mean i it, I'm so excited. I hope it's super fun. And we already have labsters who are super excited about it. But we did find this telepresence robot. People have probably seen them around or on TV, but never really thought about it. Because the other thing at our conference is we're not all just sitting in a room looking up at the front of a stage the entire time. That makes it more difficult because it's not you can just put a camera on someone and have someone from home have the experience. That's not what we do at LabCon. We are up, we are moving, we're in small groups, we're in workshops, we're breaking out, we're going outside, we're walking around the lake. I mean, we're doing activities. There's a lot of movement, quite frankly. You can't really have the laptop that you're carrying around for someone at home to experience it. But this is what's going to give us the ability to basically do that because the robot is an iPad on wheels essentially and the person at home can drive it very easily. It's very easy to use software. So it's going to allow this person to attend via robot and actually be a part of the experience and be able to move with groups. And I've already started figuring out logistics of robot friends who are going to have to make sure, oh, my robot's going to the same place as me. Let me guide the robot through because I'm envisioning these robots moving through the hotel to the different breakouts that we're going to be doing. How do you find your way? You might have to have a robot friend. Yeah, a robot buddy. I love it. I know. It's going to be so fun. And we're so excited to see people again. I told someone today, this is probably one of the most favorite parts about my job because It's just such a fun time and and I am extroverted and I just love seeing everyone, but there's just so many opportunities for connection. So we just having a meal with someone or all the things that you do when we're in person. I guess I just have missed it so much. If anyone's listening and you think this is something you would like to do, and by the way, it, it is not boring. It is two and a half days of work. It's also not completely fun and games, although we do have lots of fun and games. People come and they work on their business and they leave with new things and tools that they will immediately implement in their business. And we're really proud of that. So if this is something that you've been thinking about and you could use this time to work on your business, you do need to be part of our lab community or we have a couple of spots for special guests, but now's the time. The event's not till November. It'll be in Atlanta, but because of the pandemic, we're having to get registration super early. So we've already started filling up spots and We'd love to talk to you about it if you're at all interested. So let me know. If
0: you have been thinking about joining lab, if it's been in the back of your mind, now is the time.
1: Don't miss your chance to come be in person and or be a robot, but maybe come in person or, be a, or be a robot's friend. Yeah. Come be a robot's way. friend. There's so many opportunities. <laughs> so many. Be a robot. Be
0: a robot's friend. See the robots. Many other lawyer
1: non-robots. I, I, I see T-shirts coming in our future. We'll do it. Now we have Zach's conversation with DK Global and then my conversation with Spencer.
2: Hey, y'all. It's Zach, the legal tech advisor here at Lawyers, And today I'm joined by Cameron Teese from DK Global. Now, for those of you who don't know, DK Global provides animated demonstratives for presentation at trial. So Cameron and I are talking about what use those can be and how to enhance your your evidence at trial. Cameron, thanks for joining me today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Zach's excited to be here. Cameron,
2: my first thought when I think of kind of animated demonstratives is how do I get these into evidence at trial, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's such a great question because even those who aren't very seasoned or maybe they haven't used uh specifically animations at trial, that's a very common question that we get. And I know the very first thing that I like to tell all of our clients when even considering animations or any types of visuals is first of all, just keep in mind that these are not admitted as evidence. These are, in fact, demonstrative exhibits, and that's going to be the best route for getting these admitted into trial.
2: For example, if I've got an animation of a car wreck or something like that, I'm not using that to say this is exactly what this thing looked like. I'm using it to demonstrate. I know I've done with Matchbox cars and a a little Lego street or something (laughs) in trial just to show what was going on. This is just kind of that same concept, but certainly a much more professional way of doing that, right?
3: I'd say that's close. Now, we do incorporate a lot of data that is provided to us by, say, if we are going to be discussing a an auto collision, then we do want to take in mind what is it that your reconstruction expert has to say. And most times when we're going the route of working with an expert, and that's what you would like to do, that's what you should be doing if we are anticipating going to trial for an animation, we want to get as much data as we possibly can. And of course, what an animation ultimately is, is it's a visual representation for what the data is providing us. So if a reconstruction expert has to say that the the collision uh, occurred at 55 miles per hour, well, then the animation is going to reflect that it did occur at, in fact, 55 miles per hour. But that's ultimately how we do get it admitted, is it is a demonstrative exhibit, but how we approach that is through the use of experts
2: in this scenario you guys would work with my car accident expert or my reconstructionist or something like that in order to make this into something that was a representation of what they're testifying to what they're looking at
3: exactly so ultimately your experts whether it's a biomechanic expert a human Mm -hmm. factors expert a reconstruction expert they're ultimately the artist of the animation and right. our animators are simply the paintbrush.
2: It's a great way to look at it, obviously. The other thing, though, is that this isn't something that we always use at trial. You know, getting this representation, getting this way of showing what happened. It's my understanding that this can really easily be used just in negotiations as well.
3: Absolutely. Uh, and there's a lot of different strategies that are a lot of our clients uh, like to employ, just kind of depending on say the the particular case, who the defense is, what the challenges are that we are facing. But it is very common that we get hold on to a case to begin work very early on. So say if that is a a demand package where we want to show the defense, hey, these are the facts that we know about this case. And not only does it show how powerful and it separates your case from the stack of other stacks of case sitting on their desk, but it also shows that you're coming to achieve every penny of value of that case. It shows that you're not willing to settle for anything less than what you're demanding
2: yeah, like you said, not only does it push you to the top of that stack where they say, you know, maybe we need to negotiate this one first, but it also says we're willing to really push this and we're willing to put effort into making the jury understand what happened here. Maybe you want to deal with us before getting to the jury as well.
3: Absolutely. And ideally, what we like to bring to the table is really we want to be able to blow the opposition away. And so we want to show them that this is a high value case. We're pulling out all the stops to ensure that this case receives what they deserve.
2: And have you guys found that the animated demonstratives like this are getting what you're expecting for that or or getting those sorts of responses where instead of, you know, me as an attorney calling and saying, hey, here's what happened. Let's let's talk about this. Me sending that demand package with these animated exhibits. From your experience, are they getting the responses that you're expecting?
3: I could tell you so many countless testimonials that we have from our clients, which say when I was beginning the conversations early on with the defense, they weren't accepting liability. They were offering us ultimately zero for what we were demanding just because they didn't think that the case was worth it. Then they incorporate our animations, our demonstratives. Send it over to the defense and say, Hey, if you're not willing to come to the table for what we are demanding, then this is what a trial, this is what a jury is going to be shown and we'll let them decide what the case is worth. And ultimately it just 180s the, uh, your opposition and shows them, okay, we're willing to play. You're right. Let's talk about this. So it right. is very fascinating to almost see, you know, the, the 180 in personalities, the, how quickly they are to change their tone after seeing a powerful and impactful presentation that that you've put together
2: right well, and I guess my my last question is you know you're talking about kind of starting with not having demonstratives and then having your demand package include that. Obviously it would depend on what sort of thing it was, but at what kind of time period does this take to put something like this together
3: It, it really depends on the case mm-hmm. what exactly it is that we're putting together. I, I always like to say, let's get mm-hmm. it rolling as quickly as possible um, because it, it's not abnormal that we get, ro- we get rolling on something early on, whether it is a TBI, an auto collision right. or or what have you. And, and we start discovering that sometimes we have more questions than answers. And so sometimes our experts have to, or your experts, shall I say, have to go back either to the scene, they have to do uh, alternative simulations to really dial in mm-hmm. what exactly it is that we'd like to show. So it could range anywhere from say, you know, in a perfect world, 30 days, um, in a technological standpoint, if we've got trial coming up in, in a week, then hey, we'll do what we got to do to make it happen as long as it's technologically possible. But ultimately we want to anticipate there are going to be some changes, some feedback just based off of our process and our procedure with working with the experts. So more time is always, always what we want. So we don't get into a position where we have to rush things through.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, and I imagine that feedback helps this process as well, you know, helps, you know, whole argument in and of itself. So, well, Cameron, thank you a bunch for being with me today. I learned a lot about demonstrative exhibits. And if other people want to know more about this, they can certainly go to dkglobal.net forward slash services to dig into this a little better. Again, thanks, Cameron, for being with me.
3: Awesome. Thanks for having me, Zach. Look forward to being on, on the next one.
1: Welcome, Spencer. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I should mention that you're also a member of our lab community and I've enjoyed working with you and getting to know you over the past, I don't know, year or so. Does that seem?
4: And we're going to have a live lab con, which was the first time that we met and that'll have been two years. That'll have been two years since we, uh, Match in I guess August.
1: Today we're kind of diving into some of the concepts in, in the small firm roadmap map, our book, and and talking to real life people. How does this actually work in practice? I thought we could dive into this idea of client-centered services, which is something we talk a lot in the book about. And I'm just curious how what does that mean for for you and your firm and, and how do you even approach the idea of a client-centered firm? Well,
4: there's a few things to unpack from there. One no one's ever accused me of being a real life person. Two, we've, being client centered is certainly not something that we would ever claim to have arrived at. We're still doing a lot of foundational work, but it is work that is all driving towards the idea of being client centered and Third, being client-centered is in the heart of our mission, which is essentially to provide people with the right legal service at the right time at the right price. And we very much consider ourselves to be an access law firm. This is not the place where you uh, come for bespoke tax planning with various offshore uh, financial centers. This is where you come when you are a normal you know, small business person. I mean, that's really where our core audience is, is small business people who are local and have a variety of legal needs within their business and within their personal lives. That's why we, we blend the estate planning and, and business planning together. What does it mean to be client-centered is essentially to give people as frictionless an experience as possible obviously within the constraints of dealing with the legal system, and to be an experience that also builds trust so that they will come back and share their other problems with us. So we very much take the perspective that access to justice is a huge issue. 70% of, of all legal problems are never addressed through the legal system. One of the ways that we seek to do that is by building the kinds of trusted relationships that are actually going to cause people to bring up problems proactively and and simply bring them up to any kind of a lawyer. And hopefully that's us. But we think having a, a trusted lawyer in your life is going to make your life better.
1: When you talk about this idea of a frictionless client experience, I agree. And I would imagine that people listening may also agree, but may feel, wow, that just sounds super huge and hard and overwhelming, and I don't even know where to start. I'm curious, when you approached it, how did you get started?
4: I think perhaps it's probably best to think now, where are we? First of all, there's a massive, massive gap between what we actually deliver on and that idea of having a frictionless client experience. So point one is that it's our North Star. It's a statement of where we are looking to go and an ordering principle for what kinds of, of projects we're going to work on within the firm it's probably worth taking a, a quick step back and giving context of how I ended up at the firm. To be frank, I'm like a, and we know the, the way we technically decide what year of a lawyer you are. I'm a fourth year lawyer. I'm not super experienced. We have articling in Canada. I finished my articling experience or my articling term. I showed up to a, a new firm where I had cold called the only lawyer in the area who had a functioning website at the time because it was a beautiful place. And I was like, oh, are there any lawyers that are needed there? And I, Called her up and she said, "Yeah, we don't have nearly enough lawyers. Can you show up and you can be my successor? And do you want to buy the firm?" And this is within fifteen minutes of like talking with her. I showed up in twenty seventeen and I took my oath to become a member of the Law Society of British Columbia and handed over a check. And then I worked under her for about sixteen months, and then she worked under me for two years. After that, what was interesting is we took over a firm that that she had been here for. 10 years prior to me showing up. And before that, the firm had been open for about 25 years. What you had is this 35-year firm that had just grown completely organically. And people came, people left. We have two staff people here who have been here almost that entire period, but they've seen, I think, six or seven lawyers in uh, cycle through there in that time. What you had was a really unintentional firm that it didn't have any management structure or specified direction and was working where people had went and had great client relationships but was very much focused on short-term experiences someone calling up and saying oh here let me fix that for you and just dropping everything and, and making that person who's in front of them a priority, which is great as an experience, but it's not scalable. And what you end up doing inevitably is disappointing the person who you ought to have been doing work for at that moment. The way that would be dealt with is just working more hours, working harder. The lawyer I was working with, she was doing 70 hour weeks regularly and believe 50 to be an absolute bare minimum. And so that's one way of doing work. I think Mike Whalen calls that the churn. And it just was not really satisfying to me. Maybe I'm still naive, but it, it strikes me that a lot of the type of work that we do, especially in these more access-oriented firms, it's just not that complicated on the whole. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's not worth um, the money people pay for it or uh, oh, that, that you don't need help, but it is Typically, pretty routine, or at the very least, eighty percent of what you're going to deal with is extremely routine.
1: You had an added challenge because you're coming into an existing firm with new ideas and people who had been there some, in some instances, thirty plus years. And hey, I see an opportunity to improve things. What we're doing is great, but we could be doing something Mm -hmm. so much better. I would imagine Mm -hmm. even a whole nother challenge. In and of itself, but maybe gives hope to people listening who think, well, my firm's been this way for so long. And the message is, yeah, but it can change just because you've been stuck in a rut or you've been doing it one way for a really long time doesn't mean you can't switch directions and kind of start heading down a different path if you're Mm -hmm. intentional, you said.
4: I mean, let's be frank. Um One of the advantages of buying the place is that it's kind of the equivalent of burning your ships on the beat. You have to succeed. Um, That's an extraordinary motivator. Also, when I bought the firm, so again, entering actually a new practice area, no less. And then my son was born four months after that. This is a situation where I've got all of these things happening and you just have to plow through. Sometimes stress is good. You have different kinds yeah. of stresses. You stress and, de- and distress. And as long as you're in that you stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, it's motivating and powerful. And as long as you are not overwhelmed, then, and yeah, I was absolutely overwhelmed a lot. It's very doable. You can definitely do these things. The, the, the way taking over this firm and getting used to the way things were done. And I'll say that it wasn't. I think people think, oh, super modern firm. And if you look at our website, it's very modern looking. And if you look, it at, won
1: one of our best awards sure, of the it, year for lawyers, it and it I sure had nothing to do with that judging. I am not and a part.
4: Nobody asked me for a check or anything. But so, for instance, we only just recently did a remodel because it was a damn dirty lie. If you looked at it, you would oh, these look so modern, and then you'd show up in here, and it looked like a dentist's office from 1986. And I'd say that, again, it looks very modern. And it's like, we're not paperless, we're paper plus. People were printing out emails here. And I'm not going to lie and say that there's no emails being printed out now. That's still happening to a certain degree. But it was so far in the rearview mirror of where a modern legal practice ought to be that you could have easily given up hope. But but I believe in a couple of things. One thing I stupidly believe that I can, through sheer willpower, I can brute force my way to Willpower just, or tenacity, I guess is probably the better word for it, that I can take something somewhere. I had a previous job where I got the nickname the velvet steamroller because I would just be very friendly, but I would just stay at it and I wouldn't let people frustrate me too much. So if there was a reversal or, or someone felt that they got a short win and were able to delay something that I wanted to do, I would just smile and nod and then Oh, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, we're going in the same direction. That was that's one of my core beliefs. But the other is that firms like this and what I really loved about it was we're a 40 minute ferry ride from Vancouver. Uh, it's good to have an economic moat. Well, we have a literal one. We have water all around us and we have impassable mountains on the fo- on the fourth side. So there's not a lot of competition uh, with other firms. What I saw here is an, was an opportunity to take these really old school types of practices and see, could you modernize it? And then is it possible to then export that experience and those learnings eventually to many of the other rural uh, places throughout British Columbia, which is just a massive uh, province and has a real access to justice gap there, where you just need to have people in a community. Yeah. And all those firms are probably in danger of shutting down if they can't figure out a way to move themselves ahead. So the learning experience here was extraordinary. That was the second big motivator. So what did we do is we just, we started with something as simple as, let's just start with the name, have a conversation, and we want to make sure that it wasn't a, the, the Spencer B. Keyes law office of Spencer B. Keyes. It was because I thought that was one of the values that I brought into this or the biases was that it has to be a team-based approach that is not strictly lawyer-focused and needs have all of your allied professionals working cohesively to deliver cost-effective service. So first we started with a name and have a, have a generic name. So that we ended up with Chart House Lawyers. It's the room on a ship where plans are made yeah. and somewhere on the ocean. So we thought, oh, this is nice. Uh, and through that process, we started doing visioning and some basic branding elements. And started figuring out, well, what is the firm that I want to have? And even before that, what are some of my, my core beliefs about legal practice? And I even came up with five of them. It was that they can have greater value, not necessarily cheaper, but more better service per dollar spent. They can be more reliable in terms of quality and speed of service. They can be more profitable. There's just an enormous amount of waste that happens in, in law firms that they can be less alienating to the people inside the business. And this is to speaks to that idea of putting in 50 to 70 hour work weeks and that they can also be intellectually nourishing to, to all lawyers that you, it can be done in a way that also provides space for you to be intellectually engaged with uh, the forefront of legal practice or of your subject matter expertise and be able to bring that within your practice as well. The, the, belief is that all these things kind of come back to client centricity and that they all relate to one another. You can't have provide effective client service with lawyers who are burnt out. You can't provide effective client service if you aren't engaging in the developments in law effectively and, and training yourself constantly. You can't provide good client service if you aren't looking for efficiencies. And if you aren't sharing the the load with people who aren't lawyers simply because yeah. something has been done by a lawyer doesn't mean it has to be done by a lawyer. So these are all kind of interrelated. And then from there, we picked out some operating principles. I know you've talked about the entrepreneurial operating system on this podcast, and we picked that not because there's anything special about it, but because you just any set of rules for how you're going to run your business is imp- important. And there was a ready-made package, so good enough. And then it was just a matter of trying to create a structure of communications within our firm to talk about these things that were never talked about. We didn't even have staff meetings. We didn't have one-on-ones with staff. So creating that precursor to change, creating an environment of psychological safety as well. It's a extremely lengthy process, but it's also super invigorating.
1: Nice. Yeah.
4: Sorry, that was a monologue. My God. (laughs) I
1: think it shows that everything's interrelated and I would agree. I struggle as a coach sometimes because I know everything's going to impact everything, and and it's always hard to just get someone started. Which I'm so glad that you did. We're going to take a quick break. here from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to dive into one specific change that I know you made because I think it was brilliant and so helpful for folks.
2: Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling and message errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. Better than copy and paste, better than scripts and templates, Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. Take your time back and increase your productivity. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit TextExpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more about TextExpander. It's hard to keep up with trends when you're rushing to court and helping clients, but new cases hinge on topping the results page. You need a marketing partner to keep you informed and your firm growing. That partner is Postali, and you should know about Google Local Service Ads, LSAs connect you with folks searching for nearby legal services. LSAs show up at the top of the page, higher than maps and other listings. And the best part, you only pay if you're contacted through the ad. Appearing when somebody searches for lawyers near me has never been easier or more affordable, letting you focus on the law. LSAs are a great addition to existing PPC efforts or a standalone initiative. Quickly initiated by the Postali team, LSAs and a partnership with Postali can get your firm where it belongs. To learn more about LSAs and Postali services, visit postale.com forward slash lawyerist and reach out for a free consultation. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible, and rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of the Google search results. Personal injury lawyer SEO is all they do, so all of their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. They're an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io forward slash to get started.
1: We're back, Spencer. We're talking about how you started to make the shift and take this very old, in a sense, firm, but new to you firm and mm-hmm. remove client friction and how you started to build more of a client-centered firm. And one of the things I want to dive into, because it sounds so simple of a change, but I think it had potential for huge implications across your business, and that's that you re examined the role of a paralegal in your firm and, and their relationship with a client and you started by changing their titles. Now, what are you calling these folks?
4: So we just call them project managers. And we did that for a few reasons. The first one was that I am one of the worst people when it comes to responding to phone calls and emails for a bunch of reasons. But sure. when you're the name on the door or again... It's not how we named the place, but but if, right. if you're seen as the primary person and what you've done is you've created a client expectation of really responsive service from the lawyer, then they're going to go directly to you for everything. And that was overwhelming me. So first thought was, OK, well, why is it that people go to a lawyer first? And I don't say a lawyer in terms of a law firm. I mean, a lawyer within a law firm. Why do they go there first? And it's because they believe that you are the point person on their file. And in fact, for most of the files that we have, especially we do a lot of real estate, there's a lot of incorporations, there's a lot of, of probates and things like that I'm the responsible person. I'm the supervising person, but I'm not the person who's dealing with it on a day to day basis. And how do you convey to people that you are not that person and that there's probably somebody who's in a better position to help you? And before I arrived, everyone was called a legalist. And that's, that's a strange term itself because it, it hides a wide range of skills from the legal secretary up to a paralegal. And I thought, okay, this is, this is, let's start with just a, on a framing basis. How can we introduce support staff to clients so that they will respect the role and will include them and also not feel that they're getting the, the short end of the stick as far as client service goes. So by calling them a a project manager, we're very clear uh, at the introductory phase that they're not lawyers, but we do say that this is the person who should be your first stop. And if there's something that's really important, they can escalate it. If it's something that is just purely sharing information, they have that information and this goes to our process within the firm. So we don't have an accountability chart properly mapped out for all the roles within the firm, but within our different service offerings, at least our more standardized service offerings, but we do have a pretty clear accountability. So you have a product manager, which is me for all of them. I'm ultimately responsible for designing how a service is supposed to be delivered. But then the project manager is the person who's actually on top of where is that project in the process what's going on what's the next step who's lagging who needs to be delivering something their jobs uh, are explicitly to harass me if i'm falling behind on something and that is certainly helpful and from the client's perspective what we are seeing certainly is that clients are far more going directly to our staff with questions and not even necessarily ccing me on them which is great and they know not to deliver legal advice they can deliver legal information and that's sure. obviously a fine line that ethically people don't always rec- remember and uh, they have no problems doing that. So, I mean, one of them is still relatively new to her area is developing just an ongoing FAQ based on whenever I answer a question for her. And that's just making it easier for her to deal with things as they go along. But, but is it completely reframed who these people were as far as their ability to help the client? And it even reframed for the staff, to what degree should they be responsible for driving things forward? You just have one lawyer.
1: that's what really hit it for me is, I mean, it reframes both to the clients, as you mentioned, and I've seen other firms kind of take your lead now in our lab community and started coming up with all kinds of names, uh, client concierge or whatever fancy title you want to put it. And we've seen this in the financial services world for a long time, but it really points to the client. This is your person. Go here first. This is a team member that's important and can handle these issues. And it elevates the role to that person. Hey, this is now your role and you're going to be responsible for these things and responsible for managing the attorney, which we, I'm sure there's lots of people listening, could, shaking their heads, thinking I could be managed and harassed better. And I would love it if someone on my team was really fulfilling that role for me more. Maybe when we're thinking about naming this episode, I mean, these are two interesting examples of where you stepped back and changed the name of something, the name of the firm to something mm-hmm. that represented a larger goal that you were trying to accomplish, and now even within the positions of the firm, renaming people's roles, maybe the first step is step back and then think about what should this thing be called?
4: Ultimately, framing is absolutely essential. Like, I mean, that's why you have certain core beliefs. That's why you establish your values. That's why you establish uh, a mission and a, and a vision. And you should probably even go so far as to have your anti-values or anti-beliefs or those things that your core values and and beliefs absolutely exclude. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't have that framework, and if I've learned anything, both from lab, but also from pretty much any business reading that I've ever done, it's that you have to create a framework for people to understand where they exist in relation to an entity. Because a business... People thrive on social relationships and how people have uh, felt the last 18 months is extremely clear and visceral. And how do you have a relationship with a company? It's weird. It's a weird thing to think about. And the only way you're ever going to do that is to be able to make for them, whether they be an employee or a client, an understanding of what that company looks like and if it's extremely easy for them to say oh it's this person it's spencer spencer's the company company is spencer i'm just going to deal with everything through spencer but that's ultimately not sustainable it's not scalable it doesn't align with any of my views about client centricity but if you then can say oh this multi-headed hydra is actually friendly and can do what i want and it's not spencer it's spencer and megan and sharon and darlene and and lauren and alex and whoever Um, and they all have a different element that they are contributing to my experience, then you're going to feel well taken care of. If you are any of those people that I just named, and you're within this thing called a capital C Chartouse Lawyers, then what is your role within this entity? If it's just to do whatever Spencer says, well, then that's fine to a certain point. But again, it's not scalable. It's not going to deliver on any of our goals you have to provide some framing for it and you have to provide some definition and that definition has to also be visceral and have an emotional element to it because a project manager that communicates something to your core you don't need to see a job description to know that a project manager has some element of managing the thing and it's probably a project you don't have to look up in a book what that means you just know and you know communicating the simplest possible idea is really really important and and is the and absolutely just core to leadership because people are only going to hear you so many times no one cares about your business as much as you do by any stretch of your imagination whatever ideas you're trying to communicate to them have to be distilled into something that is so so simple that they don't need any further
1: explanation as we start to wrap up this conversation, because there's so many good nuggets in here that we need to unpack. What tangible difference or results are you seeing now as you start to put these things in place? Because I know lots of people hear us and talk about these concepts and they think, yeah, that's probably a great idea, but it's hard for them to really imagine, would that actually make a difference in my business? And I I know you and I agree the Mm -hmm. answer is absolutely yes, but if you had to kind of connect it to, are there two or three real tangible results that you're now seeing in your business based on this work?
4: I think the where we are, the most important result would be how do the staff do what they do differently? Are they making decisions that you've said that they can make decisions about? Are they treating their work as though they are accountable because, of course, ultimately the lawyer is accountable, but I always communicate that that I am externally accountable for everything, but they are all internally accountable for their jobs. And I think we're seeing a real shift. And I can't remember where I heard this analogy, so my apologies to whoever I'm stealing this from. But there's the minecart analogy about people. You've got people who are pulling the minecart. You've got people who are uh, pulling the minecart in the opposite directions. And then you've got the ones who are just sitting on top of the minecart. And you want to have more people who are pulling in the right direction than the wrong direction. And certainly you don't want to have so many people who are just sitting on top of it that they're weighing it down. And what you can see is the direction that you're going. And how bought in are people to that vision? Are they people who are pulling in the right direction or wrong direction? And we have people who on different elements are still pulling in the wrong direction. But we've got people who were clearly sitting on top of the minecart who are now pulling in the right direction. And obviously, whatever the change is, it's going to be a somewhat different mix of, of people. But what you can see, and this is especially true in a firm that is 35 years old, where you've got people who have been here for 30 plus of those years, they've seen a lot of changes attempted. They've seen a lot of, of initiatives that were tried and abandoned. And all that does is creates mistrust in whatever new thing that you're bringing to the forefront. So it's always going to take a lot longer to convince those people that um, the change you're making is both Positive that you're actually going to stick to that tenacity part is really important when they are getting on the right side of the cart. Things are going in the right direction and, and more than anything else is this create making us much more profitable. Honestly, at this, at this exact moment, it's making us less profitable for what I believe is going to be a short term period because what it's doing is. It's creating the space to make the changes that will make us more profitable, without a doubt, uh, in terms of automation and and other things. But it's also creating the space for us to make changes. And honestly, if you said two years ago, can you change this place? I would have said, probably not, but I'm going to try. And now I think it's very much the case that I can. And I'm probably as surprised as anyone to hear me say that out loud.
1: Nice. Thanks for your honesty and for sharing that it's a journey. And this isn't a thing that can shift and change overnight, but now you're on the path and you're making progress and you see the path forward. I feel like it's one of those things, the momentum keeps building. And now that you have a team that's more than willing to pull in the right direction, I can only imagine how much faster things are going to start going for you.
4: And you, you dip back and forth. You go into operations and implementation, you go back to strategy and then you go from strategy back to operations and implementation. And the strategy can't be formed out of whole cloth. It's impossible. You don't know enough until things get kinetic and you actually are trying to make the changes that you're trying to make or experimenting with these things. Framing is such a, framing discussions is all about attempting things because you don't know how other people think. You don't know how they're going to respond. The only way you can do it is to give it a try and to take those learnings and go back to it. Even now, we put our core values on our website we just made some changes so we're going to be updating that as well and we could have a much longer conversation about management and performance communication which i consider by the way to be just a, the, the the underbelly of all of these things it's how you actually talk about that but you have to go back and forth on these things or whatever it is that you deliver on is probably not going to be what you actually need
1: I guess maybe a, a parting word would be hang in there. You got to keep at it. It's evolving. Hang process. in there, kitty. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes people just need to hear that. And I, I hear that in our lab community all the time where people are, oh, it's just good to know other people are struggling with this thing that I thought I was the only one that had, hadn't unlocked. And there's comfort in that community and knowing, no, oh, this is tough. It, it takes time and it takes intention, but it can move and the process can build and
4: it's hang in there with a combination of being vulnerable, because I know that you within lab or, or outside of it, you have all sorts of extremely smart lawyers who are trained to believe that they can just think their way through a problem. And there is no magic management book. There's no magic strategy book. It's not like you get to a certain place that here are the secrets. The secrets are here. It's going to be very specific to your business, your situation. And the only way you're ever going to find out what works for your business or your situation is to try and fail and then go back to the drawing board. And the only way you're going to be able to try and fail is to take all the ideas that are in your head and start talking about them with the people that they affect regularly and having those weekly meetings and having those weekly all staff meetings and having those weekly one on one meetings and having those quarterly strategy sessions and, and just talking about this stuff on a extremely regular basis. It's, but. You can only do that with vulnerability. And I had the benefit of also being a second-year lawyer and uh, running a firm and being a guy. I I don't know anything here. I just read some books. Let me tell me how I'm wrong. And that was going to be expected, but I guess I can present well. So, you know, people bought what I was selling.
1: Don't sell yourself short. I I know you had more than that. And (laughs) I tell people all the time, there's no magic or secrets in any of the books or anything that we do. It's all about rolling up your sleeves and, and putting the ideas into practice. Thanks, Spencer, for such a valuable conversation and showing us kind of what it looks in real life as you're kind of making the sausage. It was awesome to have you on, and I can't wait to see what's next for you and for your firm.
4: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I, I, I started listening to the lawyers podcast back in, I may have still been in law school, frankly, a treat to be on here for sure.
0: Lawyerist podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the small firm roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15 minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.